Welcome to the National Capital Bible Church. It's always wonderful to come together as a assembly, as a family, as I like to say. And as we prepare for our service today, let us prepare ourselves as I use an opportunity for us to hear the Word of God and begin our concentration. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So this is our opportunity now for preparation. It always helps us to relax, sit, and begin our concentration So let's take a few seconds for our spiritual preparation, realizing that we must be in fellowship, confessing our sins, but also thinking, concentrating on the message, our worship. So let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you are our God. And because you are and loved us, you've sent your Son to be our Savior. We're thankful that our relationship with you really is very simple. It is you sending your Son to the earth. And he goes to the cross, the cross to pay for the sins that we have committed. And it's simply a matter of believing in his work on the cross. We're thankful for our service today. We're thankful that we have the opportunity to worship you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we have another one of our changes, you might say. And that is that Mike is going to give the message or we'll have uh, Jack do it. So we're thankful that we have the young voices and we're glad they're part of our church But we'll have the gift here in a few moments. But what I would like to do this morning is begin with our call to worship. Normally, I like to go to the Psalms, but there are so many other places that call us in our worship. And so let's turn to Romans 11. We'll see that Paul is going to pull together several Old Testament passages, Isaiah, and one for me, uh, coming from a, a book, is Job. So this morning, as we turn to Romans, and a lot of these don't need a lot of expansion, because as we listen to it, we realize God's relationship with us, who he is, and what he does for us. So in Romans 11... At the end of chapter 11 in Romans, this is really the conclusion to Romans chapters 9 through 11, but it's also the conclusion to chapter 11. And so Paul decides he's actually going to make an adjustment in chapter 12. So as he makes this conclusion, he says, Oh, The depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past 
finding out. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him? And it shall be repaid to him. And of course, those are answers. No, there is no one. He is the God of the universe. He is our creators. And it's wonderful for us to be creatures that are blessed by him. And then really, verse 36, he closes this chapter with a, a prayer. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. It's a wonderful place to start the call of our worship. All right. It's uh, now time for us to move to our offering. And so Mike can also get prepared. So, dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for who you are and what you've done. We're thankful for these promises, the explanation of who you are. We ask for your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's also good back uh, to be speaking and talking about John. So let's go ahead and bow our heads and we'll begin our study with a quick prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this time, for this assembly to gather and uh, to worship you and to learn about your word and to edify ourselves and to be able to understand these things and then to even apply what we learn. And as we go out about our lives and fulfilling our lives in, in light of your plan, we pray for our country and we pray for it and our church that it continues. And we pray for the people in Ukraine as they go through their tremendous crisis in Ukraine. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Oh, on the, also, we also pray for Pastor Dan and for his comfort and for his health. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So I specifically didn't give you guys homework, but I kind of implied it. Um, about, And you probably all remember what the homework was, right? To, to memorize the 12 disciples, right? <laughs> Somebody didn't memorize the 12 disciples. <laughs> and I have to admit... That, you know, a lot of the, when you get to some of the things like, you know, the 12 sons of Jacob and the 12 sons of, you know, the disciples and apostles and everything, you know, I'm fuzzy on those things too. But I'm happy that because I'm, now I'm up here, I'm under pressure, I have to learn these things and I have to memorize them too. So, um, and then when you memorize things, it's like, oh, I, I can actually do it. And so it's actually a good thing to memorize some, some of these basic things. Um, but you're, but you're, I'm not gonna test you personally, so, but if you want to come afterwards and recite the disciples, um, please do so. I think that'd be awesome. Um, so we're, we're now, we're going through John really rapidly, as opposed to when we first started off. So we're just moving right through John. And today we're gonna talk about the, the, the disciples, cause the introduction of the disciples, we're gonna, we're gonna, hear about two new disciples, okay? And then we're going to try, if we have enough time, hopefully we get into the first miracle, which actually is not really the first miracle, it's the first first signs. And during Jesus' ministry, he he conducted or performed 35 signs or miracles. And there there was a purpose for him doing that. And so we're going to get into why he does these signs and, and the first miracle and all, all that kind of stuff. It's it's going to be very, very interesting. So to clear up and, and 
when I was a younger Christian, I was was somewhat confused about between what is a disciple and what is an apostle. And there is a difference. And a disciple is basically a student, a follower. So when Jesus is gathering up his disciples, he's gathering up people who are following, who are committed to learning from him and following and following God's ways. And they, they generally recognize him as the anointed one, the Messiah, and they wanted to hear and they were committed to that. Um, as opposed to Nicodemus, who a Pharisee, he wanted, he believed in Jesus, but was not really committed. So we would not really consider him a true disciple. Now, and then there's a difference between disciple and apostle. In Matthew 10, um, Jesus identifies the 12, chosen 12, who are going to the apostles, and then gives them a commission and sends them out on their way to become, uh, as apostles, to become the delegate or envoy of of Jesus. And that's a that's a huge, obviously it's a huge commission, and there's only 12 of them. And then, of course, you know the story, one becomes the, the betrayer and is replaced by Paul. Um, so in review, I always like to do a little bit of review, and this is going to be a little different from last time I spoke. So last time I spoke, I broke things up. So Paul, John is working through this narrative uh, in the first chapter, and he's he's explained different days. And as and we get into John night one nineteen, and we have this episode with the Levites. And I don't want to belabor that because we already talked a lot about that. Um, but then when he goes into John one twenty nine, he says the next day, and then. In John 1.35, he says, again, the next day. And then in John 1.34, he says, the following day. And then we get to John 2, and he says, on the third day. So if you, John's running through this narrative that happens in like th- three days. But if you want to count, last time I was counting the encounter with the priests and Levites as day one. But now I'm going to shift that a little bit. And then day, for this purposes, day one is going to be the next day, the episode that's in John one twenty nine. Okay, not to confuse you. Are you guys confused already? <laughs> All right. So that's going to be day one. Day two is again the next day. Then when he, um, when Jesus meets Andrew and John, and then Peter's um, introduced, and then the following day is when he finds Philip and Nathaniel, and then uh, in a to me, on the third day, which is the follow- same day as the following day, is the day of the miracle or the first sign. Now, there's a lot of discussion um, in commentaries what the third day means. You, it could be the third day from you know the next again and the following, or it could be the third day of the week, or or um, it could be some other day. But to me, if you look at it as full context. It seems like we can go that's the third day, meaning it's the third day as we go down chronologically as John is explained the narrative. Um, just to put in things perspective, because this is a narrative of person, places, who, what, where. And this is all happening up into the northern. Well, first we have the conflict or the interaction with the Levites and the Pharisees north of the Dead Sea, where John the Baptist is. And then that's where he meets Andrew, John, 
and Peter, and then Jesus desires to go up north, and so he goes up north to the area of Galilee. So Galilee is that area east of the Sea of Galilee. Um, and then Nazareth is up there, and that's where he was raised, as you know the story. And so he desires to go up there. And it's not, and the Bible doesn't say that he actually took along with him Andrew, John, and Peter. It, it almost, by its context, almost like he went up there by himself. And then and the three of them, like, well, we got to get up there too. And, and plus, they're they're from that area, and they're fishermen up there, and they're, and Peter's dad is up there, and, and so everybody's up there. So they go up there, but there's no comment about whether um, they, Jesus goes with his new disciples. So if you, here's a closer picture of the Sea of Galilee, and so there's going to be three cities that are going to be involved in our story, and we have um, Bethsaida. And when, when I first looked at it, like, oh, that's Bethesda. I'm like, no, no, and then... Somebody pointed out to me, no, that, Mike, that's Bethsaida. <laughs> and, uh, so, and then we have Cana, and probably named after the land of Cana. Um, and then we have Nazareth, where Jesus is from. So that puts it in perspective. And the, notice how Nazareth is on high ground. And actually the Romans had placed a Roman garrison there. And, um, and plus there was some other Roman activity there and stuff. And people, the Jews would probably um, have su- supported or supplied or or helped the Romans in their building projects and that kind of stuff up there. Um, and no, notice that it's in the northern part of Israel. And if you remember the div- divided kingdom, it was a lot of apostasy, idolatry was happening up in the north during the during the divided kingdom. And so, if you're a person from Judah. Maybe you would have some biases or prejudices against the people in the north uh, because of what what happened during the divided kingdom era. Okay, so oh, I'm gonna hit myself there. Okay, so so let's go to First um, John one nine, uh, starting at verse forty three, and this is the beginning where um, Jesus is going to meet Philip and Nathaniel. So go to. John 1, uh, 43. I think I said first John, right? Thank you. <laughs> so John 1, 43. <laughs> so it says, um, in the, so it starts the beginning here. So the following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now Philip and Nathaniel... Uh, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come from Nazareth? So it's a, it's a funny interplay, and, and so, but it needs explanations. Um, but notice how when Jesus comes and or finds, or when um, when he encounters uh, Philip, and w- when he meets Philip, and he says, "Follow me," and Philip immediately follows him, like a true disciple. He doesn't say like, and he's very much like um, Andrew and Peter and John. He he just gets up and follows, and then, but it doesn't give much information here. Um, but we know that um, 
we, we know that he already, Jesus had already met uh, Andrew and John and Peter. So maybe Philip was introduced to those three. And in fact, it goes on to say that they're all, all those gentlemen are from the same area and they probably knew of each other. And so a lot of information probably would have been passed between them and to uh, Philip. And Philip immediately comes to the conclusion that this is the Messiah. So he goes and rushes out to find Nathaniel, and he, he finds Nathaniel and says, "Hey, look, I've, we found we found the Messiah. We found the, the the person whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote about." And and so, like, hey, you need to come see him. And he drags Philip back to where Jesus is, and then Jesus has this major response. Um, so. I think it's very important to like know that how Jesus, um, Philip just picked up and and or, um, Nathaniel just picked up and this went with uh, Philip, and Philip would just when he was called he went with him. And when I first was thinking about this or reading and trying to understand, and then when Jesus Jesus says he found Philip, at first it seems to me like well was Jesus actually looking for him? Or did he just find him? And I think that's a good question. And the word in the Greek is eureske, which is a present active indicative third person singular, and which means to uh, find. So it, it, by this context, all we can say is that Jesus just found um, Philip. We could say in his deity, he knew he was going to meet Philip, but when he found Philip, and he says, like, just follow me, and Philip does. Um, and then... There's an interesting comment in here by the writer, and it says, um, "Now, now it says now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter." And so the writer thought that was important that to include that, and I think that's important because uh, Philip is somehow already connected or relate or have known of Andrew and Peter. And so I think that's interesting, and then. Also, in, we only hear of Nathaniel and John. We don't hear Nathaniel in the other Gospels. And in the other Gospels, Nathaniel is referred as Bartholomew. And, and so most theologians believe Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same person. Okay. Okay, so... And Jesus, when when it talked, when Philip goes, we found the person, him of the Mo, of the person Moses in the law, also the prophets wrote about. And so, so that kind of forces us to kind of like, okay, what did Moses write about the Messiah? So we can go to different passages like Genesis three fifteen, or Genesis forty nine um, ten or Deuteronomy 18.15, and see how this idea of the Messiah is building out. And in Genesis 3.15, which states that, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so in theology, we call that the Proto-Evangelium, which is the, the the first mention of a redeemer or a need for a redeemer. So, and then if 
in Deuteronomy 18.15. So let's go to Deuteronomy 18.15 and see what Moses had to write about the coming Messiah. So Deuteronomy 18.15 says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see the great fire any more, lest I lest I die. Um, so that's what Moses wrote about the the coming Redeemer, Messiah, the Anointed One. And then the prophets also wrote in Numbers uh, 24, 17, and 19, which talks about the star, Psalm 2, 7, uh, Psalm 67, and Isaiah seven fourteen. So let's go to Isaiah seven fourteen and see what Isaiah says about the Redeemer. So in Isaiah seven fourteen says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call him, him his name Emmanuel. And then also, um, the prophets also wrote in Isaiah 42.10 about the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Um, so those are those were some of the passages that um, Philip is mentioning and probably thinking about um, and understanding who the prophet is. And then also, not to mention the daily sacrifices, because when they, they had the daily sacrifices and then you have the lamb without spot, without blemish, blemish they they know that was a, a temporal thing and that eventually the final lamb would come. And then Nathan says... Nathan says to uh, Philip, can anything come from Nazareth? And that's a kind of interesting response, and it sounds kind of like a prejudice response almost. And But Nathaniel was probably thinking, well, doesn't shouldn't the Messiah come from like an area around Jerusalem or in at least from somewhere in Judah or the southern part? And in, in, um, Nathaniel's probably thinking like, well, the northern part, especially during the Davidic kingdom, they had all this idolatry and stuff, and there and there was a bunch of bad people there before, and plus now the the Romans have garrisons up in uh, Nazareth, and and so those people are supporting the Romans and they're mingling with them, and that's really bad too and stuff. So he probably has this really kind of biased attitude toward the area up there, and, or at least the redeemer shouldn't come from there. 
And, and then I did some research because I know there's a somewhere in the New Testament um, it says that well the, the Jesus would be called the Nazarene, and but nowhere in the Old Testament is there a prophecy saying that Jesus would come from Nazareth, and so there's there's a lot of discussion back on that. I'm not going to go on that sideways because you can go really off on a track and get in the deep woods and that and stuff. So just I'm not going to do that right now. But if you're interested, we can talk about it. Um, afterwards, but um, but that's I thought that was very interesting. There's no specific prophecy about Jesus having to come from Nazareth, um, but in the New Testament it says he would be called the Nazarene. Okay, so then now we're up to the episode in John one forty seven where now um, Nathaniel is being dragged by Philip, or maybe he's probably coming and he's probably enthusiastic about this. And he meets with Jesus, and in Jesus, his comment is, um, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no receipt. And Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the, the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the, the king of Israel. And, and so the question is like, there's, um, there seems like so much little information that was offered here for Nathanael to think like, well, Jesus can read my mind. And he comes to the conclusions like, you are truly the son of God, but just very little information. But to put it, put it in perspective, um, Jesus, who's also God, can reach into his heart or look into his heart and and see what is Nathaniel's r- true heart, where his true thinking is. And and most people agree that Nathaniel was reading under the fig tree, which was a common practice. It was the best practice for for the custom at that time is when you're reading and contemplating scripture that you go under a fig tree which provides shade and that's the best place to read and contemplate the word. And that's exactly what Nathaniel was doing. And he was most likely reading the episode about Jacob when Jacob was at Bethel, uh, and he was, and he fell asleep and he was using a rock as a pillow. And then he had a dream about the angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And, and Jesus kind of, so when Jesus mentioned an Israelite without deceit, he's thinking he knows what what Jay, um, uh, what Nathaniel was actually reading. He was reading that episode in Jacob when he's at Bethel and having this dream. And he's, he so when he says uh, Israelite, he's referring to Israel, the person Israel, Jacob. So a, Jacob has two names, Jacob and Israel. So the word, the name Jacob often has. This idea of deceit. So, because Jacob deceived, deceived his father, and then, but then he rebounded and became a really good person. And then ultimately, when he struggled with God, um, God, and he, God made his hip go out and gave him a new name, and his new name was Israel. So, when he's calling, um, Nathaniel, you're an Israelite without deceit, he's referring like, you're like Israel, the person Israel without deceit. Unlike Jacob, who was deceitful, and because and he was reading about that episode and contemplating all this, and that so 
um, God, so Nathaniel realized like he knows exactly what I was thinking and what I was reading. Um, so there's actually more into that. Um, and then Jesus goes on to say, and Jesus answered him, or and Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, thereafter you shall see the heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so when you hear that, your, your mind should automatically go to what Jacob's dream where he saw angels ascending and descending. Um, and so henceforth, Nathaniel slash Bartholomew follows Jesus and becomes his disciple. So, um, so another question to raise in your mind is like, well, because John is like the fourth um, gospel in the series, right? But if you read Matthew, you would have got a different introduction to the disciples. And if you had only read Matthew, you would say, wait a minute. Like when I, I thought, I thought the, the Jesus met the disciples when they're at Galilee during, while they were fishing. And that's how they met him. Um, so let's go to Matthew 4.18. And so re- remember that these um, are four different Gospels written by four different human authors inspired by God the Holy Spirit. And they're giving their account of what they knew about what happened. And so there's like four different eyewitness accounts. And so Matthew is giving his account of what happened. And so it starts off in Matthew 4.18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. And then going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So if you just started off with Matthew, you would think, okay, this is the first introduction. But what I think happened is that Jesus met um, Andrew, John, and Peter north where John the Baptist was doing his ministry north of the Dead Sea. And then Jesus desired to go up to Galilee where he's from or where he was, where he grew up. And he goes off and there's no mention that the three disciples walked with Jesus. Maybe Jesus went by himself and maybe the disciples like, well, if he's going up there, let's go up there too. So when they went up there, um, they naturally went met with their like father and start fishing because that's what they normally do. And then Jesus arrives in Galilee and meets them there because he already had met Andrew, John, and Peter. And then says, hey, um, follow me. And they do. And they follow him. And, and that was pretty much the end of their 
fishing career until after his uh, and, and after the crucifixion because they go back to Galilee to start fishing again. But but God gives them a new commission and says, "Follow me. Uh, now I'm going to make you disciples and apostles, and you're going to be fishers of men." So I think so. I hope that clarifies that a little bit. Um, so then now, now we're getting in, so we're speeding right through chapter one. So now we're, now we're going to transition to chapter two, and chapter two is not really a, like, a different narrative in there. The narrative to me is a continuous narrative. And, and so if we go back to, um, our kind of outline for today, where when we start in verse chapter or chapter one, verse twenty nine, we have day one, the ne- the next day, and then we have another day, starting in verse thirty five, and then another a third day starting off in forty three, and then in chapter two, as John says, the the third day, and so does John mean the third day? From the the next day, and I think that's a good idea. Um, could it be a third day in the week or some other third day? But if you think about the context, perhaps it's the third day from from chapter twenty nine, which which means the following day and the third day are the same day. And so when Jesus meets Philip and Nathaniel, it's possible that uh, after he meets them, and then they go off to the wedding because they're all invited. And so they go to this wedding, and it's kind of encouraging to hear that Jesus is doing like a, a very human cultural thing. And he goes, and of course, weddings are, uh, God uh, created the divine institution of marriage, and so this, this is a totally appropriate thing to do. And so Jesus goes to the wedding, and it was customary that the weddings would, in, in the time of Jesus in Israel, were seven days. So the wedding feast went on for seven days. And then it was very customary that they would hire a master of of the feast, master of feasts. And so the bridegroom and the bride wouldn't have to do very much. Um, so they would people would handle all that kind of stuff and everything. And so they go there, and and as the the wedding takes takes place, um, we don't know what day of the wedding feast it is. We don't know if it's the first day or the second day or third day, but um, they run out of wine. Um, and when people came to the wedding feast uh, as the guests, it was expected they should bring uh, a gift. And alternatively, it was also expected that the the bridegroom and the bride, would, being coordinated by the, the master of the feast, would be well supplied with food and wine and other stuff. So it was always expected there would be plenty of food and plenty of wine to drink. And well, guess what? They run out of wine. And this was no uh, small thing. This was a big deal that they ran out of wine. It would be completely embarrassing. And it appears that the master of the feast were probably was not aware that they had run out of wine. But somebody went and told the mother of Jesus that, hey, uh, we ran out of wine, and Mary f- found out about it. Notice in, in the scripture, it doesn't say Mary's name. It just says the mother of Jesus. And so Mary, like, well, not, you know, she can't go out and get, buy a new wine and everything. It's not, it's kind of too late and where are they going to get it and everything. So she goes to her son and then says, like, um, 
a son, uh, they're out of wine. And then, so let's read what his response was. So, so in chapter two, starting in chapter two, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana. And let, let me show where Cana is. If you look on the map here, Cana is east of the Sea of Galilee, which we consider that whole area Galilee. And it's, uh, north of Nazareth. So not too far from his hometown. Um, the wedding in Gal, uh, Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does your, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Uh, so this is an interesting interaction between Jesus and his mother. And it's like, what, you know, why is he calling her woman? And, and then why is he saying, like, what does this have this concern to do with me? And, and to put it in context, is, so we're dealing with, um, this is Jewish culture. It's not Western civilization culture. So you have that going. And then Jesus is, it appears that Jesus' father, Joseph, has already passed away and he's in heaven. And now Jesus is head of the household and pretty much, and he's over, he's 30 plus years of age. So he's the head of the household, um, and he's responsible for his mother's well-being. And now he's starting his, he's starting his ministry and he's an adult and he's the head of the household. And so, so when he comes to him and he, it's not a sign of disrespect. He's not being disrespectful. He's just saying clearly, woman, you know, like, hey, um, and that was totally normal because when he's on the cross, doesn't he say when he's on the cross being crucified and he goes, woman, here's uh, my brother James and now he's in charge of you. So um, so, th- so that's not like an inappropriate thing for him to say. And plus he, he's Jesus. And then he's, he says, um, this, what does this have to concern with me? Because my hour has not yet come. And so when you hear about hour, my hour or my time, uh, what is he referring to? And so when he, a lot of times when he, he's being corrupted by people and they're going to seize him and then try to kill him, often in the Bible will say it's, the time has not come. It's not time for his crucifixion. So this could be meaning that the hour has not come to identify himself publicly as the Messiah or the time has not come for him to do his redeeming work on the cross. I think in the context is probably the hour has not come for him to publicly identify himself as the Messiah. Um, but he's going, but he's going to go ahead and he's decided that, okay, I'm going to do a private sign. It's not going to be a public sign. It's more of a private sign. And, but it's going to, we're going to read about it. Um, later, and that's for our benefit. So continuing on from um, verse 6, now there were six water, um, water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water part, pots with water, and they filled them up with to the brim. And he said to them, "Draw some out, some, draw 
some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took, and they took it. Then the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, every man at the beginning sets out good wine and then the guests have, and guests have well drunk. Then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. So there seems to be more inner, more here than that meets the eye. Um, is it just a simple sign that God just turns water into wine? And why would he allow this simple private miracle? Is it for a teaching moment or something like that? Is there more here? And I think there's more here. So the, the, the jars, the, or the, the jars or the pots, they're actually stone. They're not clay. And for, and they're used for cleansing before and after the feast. And so people are required to get a temporal cleansing from the water. And water is a, used as an agent is for a temporal cleansing, as we have learned about earlier. And they were in a stone by tradition, in the Jewish tradition, um, that they were in the stone because pots were, clay pots were considered impure because they had impurities. So better to have them in stone, which are carved out, which would be really hard to carve out a huge jar out of stone. And then water was put in there for a temporal cleansing. Um, and then notice that there were some that were 20 gallons and some were 30 gallons. And then where did you, have you heard 20 and 30 before? I think that's interesting, and maybe we should investigate that a little bit more. I mean, we're, we've heard 20 silver pieces when Joseph was sold into slavery and then Judas paid 30 pieces of silver when he betrayed Jesus. Um, and then the, just as a side note, the, the, in the Greek it doesn't say gallons. That's how we translate it. In the Greek it's uh, metretos, which is a type of measurement, kind of like gallons. So you have, which is about 40 liters, which equals about 10.6 gallons. But typically, but the 20 and 30 is there. Um, and so I think what Jesus is saying or, or trying to get us to think about is that, and I've had a discussion with um, somebody before coming here, and he goes, well, how do you know that the wine was red? Like, well, could it have been white wine? <laughs> and I think it... Um, I think the the wine the word in the Greek is oiknon, and typically it refers to red wine. So I think it's safe to th- say it's definitely a red wine in there, and um, so and then plus in the commentaries it's like gr- red wine, grape juice, that kind of stuff. But it was definitely wine, um, and so when when Jesus took the water, which was used for temporal cleansing, and he made it into a red wine as a gift to the bride and bridegroom which could represent like uh, all the people past, present, and future as a gift. And he's turning the cleansing, the temporal water, which is used for temporal cleansing, into red wine, which represents his work, salvation work. And now that red wine is for, his, for a permanent cleansing. So the red wine is his salvation work, which represents a permanent cleansing, and which is offered up to the bridegroom, which could represent us. Um, I don't know if that's 
um, not lock solid on that, but I think that's a good picture of that. And then, and then plus we have the imagery of that's filled to the brim, that's maybe paid in full, and um, we have the the pieces that we have twenty and thirty. So I, I think there's interesting imagery that's going on here. Um, and then one final thought is that do um, you have the master of ceremonies and the master of ceremonies? He goes, um, when he gets the wine, he goes, well, usually save, the, usually have the best wine first because everybody has a lot of wine and, and they won't notice the bad wine after they add a lot. And, but you save the best for last. And he verifies, so the servants who brought him the wine knew that the water had been turned into wine, but the master of, of the feast did not know the sign or miracle, but he certifies that the, the water had been changed into wine. He certifies the miracle or the sign. And in almost the same way as the centurion who stands at the foot of the cross and Jesus um, is crucified and bears the sins of the world, and the centurion, who's the commanding officer at the crucifixion, goes, truly, this is um, the Son of God. And so in the same way, the Master of Feast certifies that the wine. Um, I don't know if you can totally make that connection, but... Um, it seems it seems nice, pr- logical. Um, and then one last thing is that uh, he says the last, the, the best was saved for last, and that could be a reference to the fact that we had all the prophets, and then Jesus comes last. Um, so that's pretty much the end of the 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 wine, the first miracle or the first sign, and the first signs are designed to show um, that he is. The Messiah, and that it's demonstrating that he's fulfilling scripture, and then people can believe that he is now the anointed one, the Messiah. Okay, so then next time we'll start off in chapter 11, if I, if I come back, and then we'll go more into the, um, into John chapter 2. So let's go ahead and bow our heads. Lord, thank you so much for this opportunity to learn about the introduction of the first disciples and of the first miracle, the, mer- the first sign. We hope we bring these into our heart and to understand these things. And we also pray for our church, and we pray for Pastor Dan and for his health. In Jesus Christ we pray, amen. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the truth that we find from the Word of God. We're thankful for the Gospel of John uh, as it's really focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learn about him. We understand how important for uh, the world as he came into the world and became the redeemer for us. We ask for your blessing upon the service, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.